Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk with Dave Bindra, Vice President of BNB Fine Gems. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and JCKOnline.com, calling in from Los Angeles. Happy New Year, everyone, and Happy New Year to you, Rob. I should say. Hi. Uh, thank you. Happy New Year, Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCKOnline.com. You have a good New Year? I had a pretty mellow New Year, and then uh, it rained cats and dogs here in LA. It's been like You've probably seen the news. California is being slammed with all these storms, which is a little unusual. And uh, but then New Year's Day cleared up and I took my son and my sister and my mom and her dog. And we all went up to the beaches in Santa Barbara, which was lovely. Not to like lay out or anything ridiculous like that, but just to hang out. So, yeah. How about you? How was your New Year? It was pretty quiet, you know, just a couple with kids New Year. Just kind of hang out. Yeah, no, they they get progressively more mellow as the years go on, sadly. And also, I mean, by the time people are listening to this, it's going to be like mid-Jan. I still think it's fair to say Happy New Year. I think all of January is fair, but people would disagree. Maybe we just move on. Yeah, if you haven't said it to somebody, it's good to say. Mm. Well, you know, in in our neck of the woods here and, and in our industry, I think most eyes are on what shows lie ahead. I'm actually heading to Vicenza in a week and also Shortly after Vicenza, coming back from Vicenza, I'll be in Tucson, and that is the exact topic we want to talk about with our guest, who I consider a good friend, is somebody I always want to talk to and hang out, especially when I see him at shows, but more importantly, whenever I can here in LA. Many of you will know him as an Instagram personality, although, and we'll talk to him a little bit about that. He's known as Gemfluencer on Instagram, but more importantly, he's Dave Bindra, Vice President of B&B Fine Gems here in LA. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to both of you. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah. You know, we're trying to think about who we wanted to talk to about Tucson, since that's kind of the big focus here. And you were the first name that popped up in my head, at least. I I feel like whenever I swing by the B&B booth at the AGTA Gem Fair, you just feel like a solid check-in right from the beginning. And I always like to see what you've got and what you're saying. So we thought we'd invite you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't believe that Tucson is just around the corner. It's pretty unbelievable. I know. I know. It feels like, I guess it'll be, well, we'll we'll sort of get to the vibe and what we're expecting for this year's show. I've heard pretty good things and general optimism. But before we get there, we always ask our guests to start out with a little background. Now, you have come from a strong family business run by your dad, Ruben Bindra, but it's possible you, you have a whole other background we don't know about. Like, tell us how you got up into the family business. You went to USC, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I actually... This wasn't a, a predestined, uh, or perhaps it was predestined, but this was not a, a pre-planned path for me. Uh, I studied at the University of Southern California, and I actually thought that I was going to go to law school. My dream was to practice international law, but my heart and my my head weren't really in the game. Uh, and I kind of grew up on the fringe of the gem business. My mom and my dad actually both started this business together in 1982, if I'm not mistaken. And, and were they from a, a gem business background? How did they get into it? No, not at all. And that's kind of, you know, that was kind of the point I was going to make. My parents didn't want me to join the business at all because they came here to America with nothing and struggled and, you know, saw the hard times as entrepreneurs uh, and as sole proprietors of a a business. And they kind of accidentally got into the business. Uh, You know, my dad had a friend from Jaipur 
Kapoor, who was actually trading in uh, pretty low-end uh, colored gemstones, things like topaz, citrine, amethyst, ametrine at that time. And he was looking for new work. And his friend was kind enough to offer him some uh, merchandise on consignment. And my dad started the business going door to door, selling to jewelry stores between Southern California and all the way up to the very north end of the state and into Nevada as well. So he would go and run on the road for, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day. And my mom would run the office and then take care of us. So, uh, you know, that's that's kind of how our business started. But I thought I had a completely different path. My heart and my head were not in it. And uh, I took one trip with my dad overseas to kind of get my mind off of things. And uh, it was uh, a trip shadowing him to Bangkok. And I kind of saw the inner workings of the business that I'd always been on the fringe of, but I'd never really appreciated. And I just, I fell in love with it and I wanted to know more about it. And, uh, you know, you got to understand for me, I, I've been going to Tucson since I was like four or five years old. <laughs> So I've been collecting rocks for that long. I've been I've been around minerals. I've been around gemstones. I always loved the material, but I didn't love the business. And I think that's because I saw my dad was traveling all the time and my, my parents had sacrificed a lot to build a life for their family. But once I took that trip, I kind of, you know, a lot of people will say they got bit by the bug at some point uh, who are in the colored gemstone business. I think you got to be a little crazy to be in this side of the, the industry. Uh, but yeah, I, I got bit and uh, it was it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Was there anything in particular that attracted you on those buying trips? You know, I think initially what drew me in was the human element of it. The fact that there was such a high level of trust. I mean, one formative experience that I, I have even at the beginning of my career was somebody handing my father a parcel paper basically on the streets of Bangkok. And there was just this ethos of like business being done on a handshake. And I was always looking for the paperwork, the piece of paper, the contract, the document, the receipt. And my father, you know, told me from very early on that, you know, your handshake in this business is worth more than any document, any piece of paper. And it takes a lifetime to build these relationships and most importantly, your reputation. So I think that's what I, I really loved about it. It's something that spoke to me. I was always an entrepreneur as, as a young kid. I always had side hustles, uh, you know, so the commerce side of it was all also interesting. And then I think once I went to GIA, I really fell in love with the material itself and the gemstones and getting my graduate gemologist degree at GIA and being exposed to so much uh, and, and really having an understanding and appreciation for what it takes for this material to come to the surface of the earth, that kind of solidified my passion in it. And when you talk about the material, tell us a little bit about B&B's specialty. I mean, I've come to you for some really exotic stones, and we, we might get to that later, but what's your bread and butter? Yeah, so I would say our niche in the space in a broad stroke is just in fine quality material. We deal in anything that's basically one carat up, but pretty much everything from rubies, sapphires, emeralds, tourmalines, garnets, uh, spinels, alexandrites. We are kind of known for really specialty, uh, unique, and rare gemstones, uh, and oftentimes those stones are of, of quite, uh, you know, importance or significance. But, you know, really, like, if, if I were to look at my inventory and tell you what's the one consistent thread that needles everything together, it's quality. What was your business like during COVID? I mean, we, we heard, obviously, so much about the finished jewelry business soaring and just people turning to jewelry purchases when they, you know, didn't have any other place to spend their money. Did did, does that mean the loose stone business soared as well? For us, it was a really unique year. We were shut down for about three months and it was it was wild. Like the first month, I didn't go into my office at all because it was completely locked down. And then like the second month, I was like sneaking in and out of my building like a ninja. <laughs> 
basically getting stones, bringing them home. And then I started posting stuff on Instagram from my backyard. And I started taking Zoom meetings one month into the pandemic and selling stones virtually for momentous occasions with uh, you know, some of my retail jewelry partners, some of my private jewelry partners who would virtually access their clients as well. So we adapted digitally pretty early on. The year itself, all things considered, ended up being you know quite quite okay for us, but it wasn't a boom year for us the way it was for a lot of people in the diamond market and in the finished diamond jewelry market and finished jewelry market. But what did happen for us that was uh, very significant was that we really tightened our operation down. We tightened our business up. We trimmed a lot of the fat, I would say, in our business and in our inventory. And we also gained a lot of market share, I would say, overseas in terms of our sourcing networks, because I was buying consistently throughout the pandemic when I, I when my business wasn't even operating because I wanted to support our partners overseas. So it positioned us very well into uh, you know an extremely fruitful 2021 and 2022 subsequently as well because of that. So the pandemic was the first time you got on Instagram? I had a pretty I had a pretty solid following before the pandemic. It definitely grew in 2020, but I was focusing a lot more energy into growing my Instagram following in I would say 2017 through 2019. And 2020 onwards, I've kind of been coasting. I haven't really been aggressively pursuing growth in that platform. It's just it's it's become honestly, it's more my Instagram is more of a form of creative and personal expression for me and just staying front of mind for my clients that do follow me on Instagram. Uh, I know Vic, you had asked me, uh, you know, why. I, uh, I had been a little less active for the last uh, you know, month or so. Yeah. Honestly, I just needed some time off. I took a social media break altogether two and a half months ago for about a week. I ended up deleting my Facebook and it was one of the best things I've ever done for myself because it's easy to get burnt out. And my Instagram is not, it's not about commerce. It's not about posting something consistently. It's really about how I feel and it's my expression. And for me, it's like merging every medium of inspiration that I find, whether it's in architecture or music or fashion or a color scheme that I see in a lilac outside that you know reminds me of a stone that's it's for me that's what it is so I just needed to take a step back well totally understand the need to take a break your Instagram is pretty special though so hopefully you do get back just because it's that merging of your amazing sneaker collection those crazy colored stones that match your rainbow of sneakers perfectly and the music the music's you know such a key part who you must I mean, were you a DJ in college or something? You seem like you just have kind of a sixth sense for what music makes sense for a particular vibe. I was. I was a DJ, actually. Uh, and I think like creating playlists for my friends is, uh, is, a, is a, love, uh, a love language of mine. So I love sharing music um, and, and it's a big part of it. So yeah, I, I'm definitely, uh, I'm getting back on it though. <laughs> Between now and Tucson, you're going to see a lot more content. It's, it's, we, got some, we got some heat for, uh, for everybody out there. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah, people who haven't checked it out really should. It's super fun, super fun. You're considered uh, one of the younger people, I guess, in the industry. You know, you're active on Instagram and things like that. I read a recent interview when you talked a little bit about you thought there was a generation gap in the business. Do you think there's an issue getting younger people in this industry? Yeah, I, I definitely think there is. You know, I think, unfortunately, the barrier to entry to get into this business is very high. I don't know that I would have gotten into this business if I didn't come from a, a 
family a business myself. You know, I, I speak from a, a voice of privilege, uh, you know, and I never take that for granted. So I think we do have a problem, but I think a lot of things are being done to address that. I think another issue we have is that our business is not very diverse. This is an industry that is predominantly controlled by white men, you know, that 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 that's changing, though. And it's funny because you look if you look around, if you look at a lot of the big industry leaders that are uh, in our space, uh, you know, you have people who are movers and shakers, people like Susan Jacques, people like Tiffany Stevens, uh, people like Victoria Gamelsky, you know, like, you know, there are a lot of women who are here who are changing the face of our industry. So I think it's an exciting time. I think groups like the Black and Jewelry Coalition are really changing the face of what we do as well. And also big institutions like the American Gem Society. AGS has been, I've been a big part of their DEI initiatives, and we've been doing a lot to lower that barrier of entry. So I think by doing that, by creating more educational opportunities, we'll see that change. But for right now, it's an issue that needs to be addressed, but I think it's being addressed. I don't know where you find time to be involved with all these organizations, given just how, yes, I mean, the, the Colored Stone business, obviously you've got, I don't know how many clients you have. You said you have a lot of international relationships as well. So. That's, that's that's when you see me disappear on social media. <laughs> I've, got little, I've got a little too much going on. So it's it's a lot, but you know, it's it's cool. Like for me, uh, I think I think I have an obligation. You know, I think a lot, there were a lot of people who gave me opportunities. There were a lot of people who empowered me to be in the positions that I was in, to make strides that I was able to make and to take our family business and grow it to where we've grown it to. So, you know, you, you find time for, for things like this. And I, I, I care about this. Like I, I'm not in this business just to like, you know, make a couple bucks. And, you know, that's the funny thing about this space. It seems very luxurious. It seems very like high flying, but it, it's, it's actually, it's a grind. It's not easy to be in this business, but I, I care about it and we find time and, uh, you know, we care about the longevity of the space. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. With over 130 years of experience, the De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides expert online and in-person education across the diamond pipeline. Their range of courses is designed for all students, from industry newcomers to well-versed veterans seeking more specialist knowledge. Starting with their Diamond Foundation course and advancing to polished grading, synthetic diamond detection, and a range of specialist deep dive courses, they have all your education needs covered. Visit institute.debeers.com to explore their current courses. Every now and then I'll talk to people in the colored stone business and they'll lament that there's no, uh, what I hear a lot is no quote unquote De Beers for colored gemstones that they don't have the, I mean, they have plenty of consumer awareness, but they don't necessarily have the push behind them as that diamonds have had historically and still do to a large extent. Do you think that's necessary that there there needs to be more promotion of colored gemstones well you know like the dtc was a function of a very large conglomerate making a big push because they had a commercial interest right the difference is in the colored gemstone world uh, is that you know it would have to be a group of organizations institutions publicly traded companies probably who came together and really made a push i i do think that we would benefit from it but part of what makes our space so romantic is that it is a, a little bit off the beaten path, you know, so I think there is some value there that, you know, we're not selling a mass commercialized item, you know, there's real romance in what we sell. So I kind of feel like it's a catch 22. Uh, but that being said, it's happening right now. Open a Rob Report, open Architectural Digest, open Vogue. I mean, look at what uh, Louis Vuitton is advertising. Look at what Cartier is advertising. Look at what Tiffany is advertising. There's a ton of color out there. You know, it might not be an organized campaign for one gemstone, but color as a whole, it's here. 
But I do feel like the industry as a whole would, would benefit if, you know, there was a more organized and, you know, harmonious effort to create education. I think you're going to see it in the next five years, though. You know, the good thing about our space is that colored gemstones aren't really traceability as a whole. The big concern from a consumer protection standpoint with traceability is A, is the product being traded fraudulently and B, is the commerce of the product supporting fraudulent activity or illegal activity. That's usually contraband, right? Like people are selling diamonds or trading diamonds or gold or precious metals for contraband. They don't really do that with colored gemstones because the value is so subjective. So we're a little sheltered from that aspect, but I think there's a lot of value in being able to tell the story. I think traceability is important because it creates a really beautiful story. Like I've met people who, you know, love the fact that their their sapphire engagement ring is from Madagascar. And to them, it's such an exotic connection that they have to some this beautiful place on the other side of the world that they might not have had a connection with otherwise, or it's a part of their love story. So, you know, I think I think there's a lot of value there. And uh, I think we need to focus more energy on telling these stories if we can provide that data. Are your customers, I guess, primarily retailers asking you these questions more and more? Or is it really the industry sort of pushing this on buyers? I mean, what's your sense of how? I think across the board, everyone's asking these questions more and more. People are more and more interested. I think what's interesting is traceability is it's much more of a, a hot topic with major brands and with small designers than it is with the brick and mortar retail jeweler. But that's changing, you know, and I think what's shifting with that is honestly, I think it's the younger consumer. I think the younger consumer wants to know where their materials are coming from. They want to know about traceability. They want to know if there's an ethical practice involved, if possible. They want to know about a story. You know, so I, it, it is more and more becoming something that's that, that's focused on. I'd love to get your take on this year's Tucson and what you're sensing. A is like the kind of the vibe of the marketplace, people's general moods. And then B, tell us a little bit about supplies and pricing and or what buyers can expect from supplies and pricing when they hit the shows. Well, I think inflationary measures have already hit our, our market and they're going to continue to do so. So people are going to be a little, uh, they'll have a little sticker shock. People who are really involved in the market and who've been like trading for the last four or five months won't be a surprise. But for people who haven't checked prices, who haven't been in a marketplace or spoken to dealers or traders in a year, there will definitely be a, an adjustment for them. I think the show as a whole, uh, it's pretty hard to predict what's going to happen. I, I honestly did not expect last year's show to be what it was. I was concerned that it was going to soften up a little bit and it was a pretty strong show across the board for most American companies. Uh, so I, I'm cautious to make any predictions about what commerce will be like. Uh, certainly there will be a lot of buyers there though. The big problem that a lot of us have right now is replacing merchandise. It's been very, the supply chain has been very tight. It's been very hard to find the right items, uh, especially when we're talking about the rare, unusual, exotic gemstones. And there's been an unprecedented amount of liquidity out in the market, I want to say, in the last two years. So anytime something fine comes into the market, instead of five hands ready to make an offer on something, there are probably 10 people, Wow, you know? So it's, it's, it's highly competitive. But Tucson is also a little bit of a bubble. Tucson's the only colored gemstone-centric show mm -hmm. in, in the world, right? And there are a lot of people who only buy in Tucson, just as there are many people who come to JCK and only do their, their purchases there. But people come here for this purpose. So I, I think, I don't I don't know that Tucson will be as good of a an indicator for the rest of the year, but my feeling is that 
there's going to be some activity. From what I understand, also, it's impossible to get a hotel or Airbnb or VRBO right now. So, And are you guys, any anything you can tease us in terms of your inventory, anything special, any hints as to what you might be showing? I mean, I know in past years, I came to you to find some Bonito White, which is a beautiful bluestone, only comes from one place on earth in California. I guess the Bonito Mine, is that what it's called? Yeah, San Benito County. That's right, San Benito County. So for this year, any hints or teases about what we might see? We've been collecting uh, an incredible selection of sapphires this year. So I think we'll have the strongest sapphire inventory that maybe we've ever had in the history of our company. So classic blue has been a real strong staple item over the last two years. So blue sapphires, we'll see some incredible items. Uh, And then uh, we've got some really special spinels. And spinels have been very, very hot, very hard to come by. And uh, We've got a couple of real, real special stones that we've been very fortunate to to acquire in the last couple of months. So we'll be excited to share those. Any specific color of spinel? Yeah, hot pink. That hot pink material from Tanzania, from Mahenge specifically, got a couple of real, uh, real sweet stones that, mm. are, that are from. Is that like a Viva Magenta? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it Viva Magenta. I, I think it's much more neon and it's more of an orangey reddish pink mm-hmm. than that color tone. But on that note, we have some really interesting tourmalines that are in that color range. We actually bought up an entire production of uh, what we're calling rose to peach tourmalines, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are in that Viva Magenta uh, range. You know, Pantone's usually not really good indicator of what's going to trend for gemstone consumption that year. Hmm. But I do think I do think that this color is going to be is going to be hot. I'm, I'm looking at these colors. I'm looking at peaches continuing to be really strong and really hot. Like paparacha sapphires are so hard to keep in stock right now if we can even buy them. So I, I would say those colors are good. And then like I think strong old neon colors are really uh, they're going to continue to be really hot. I think in the next you know six to 12 months. Wait to see these. I have a pair of uh, gray spinels that I was gifted actually in Tucson many years ago. Yeah, I remember you told me. Yeah, I'm actually thinking about doing something with them. I want to know what you think is a really underappreciated gem. Like what deserves its due and has not yet gotten it? You know, I think I think garnets. I think garnets are really underappreciated and undervalued. You have like the creme de la creme garnets, which are the Russian demantoid garnets. You know, those are a highly prized and sought after collector's gemstone. Those are very valuable. But Savrai garnets, Malaya garnets, which are in this rose peach color, Umbalite garnets, which are purple. Uh, mandarin garnets, which are this bright orange. I just posted one on my story on Instagram actually today. Beautiful stone. These stones are, they're, they're really beautiful. They're completely untreated. I think they're just, they're really versatile and they're durable. You know, they're, you can, I, I wear a Savrite almost every day. You can wear them, you can beat them up. So I think, I think these stones are undervalued and underappreciated and hopefully more people pay attention to them. I think the problem is that people kind of assume the consumer, the layman has this association with garnet being this like dark, rosy red stone tone and their grandmother's pendant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, but I think that's changing because you have big designers. I mean, Lauren Harwell Godfrey, like she's like, she's one of these designers that's going out there and using a lot of wild stones. And like, she uses a ton of like really cool, unique colors of these garnets. And she's able to educate her consumers about, you know, what they are and why they're special to her. And I think we just need more people like that who are able to do so. Yeah, I just saw she posted something on her Instagram just recently because I guess she's a January baby and Garnet's a January birthstone. And she kind of had the same comment that for a long time she didn't like it because she just assumed it was that very traditional kind of reddish, you know, not very exciting Garnet. But yeah, I, I do think people just have never explored the world of Garnet to the degree it deserves. So hopefully 23 might be a turning point. Do you, do you get a lot of like big brands coming your way at Tucson too? Like the Tiffany's and the Boucherons and the real 
high French maisons. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, that's for the, for a lot of these companies, it's uh, it's their first uh, acquisitions opportunity for Q1, so it's an important show for them. Some of these brands are coming looking for things specifically. Some of them are just scoping the market to see what's out there. And uh, some of these groups that we work with, sometimes we might take a meeting at the end of January and. Uh, start working on something that they need, uh, you know, in December or January of the next year. For some brands, we're already working on collections for 2025. <laughs> so these things take a lot of time with some of these companies. So yeah, definitely. Do you have a favorite gemstone? Like if you had to pick it like a desert island gemstone, and this is, I don't think you'd find many podcasts where they'd use the phrase desert island gemstone, but if you had to pick one, what would it be? Oh man, that's tough. Yeah, I, I'd... I'd uh... That's that's hard. I, I think uh, I think Spinel would definitely be at the top of my list just because I'm so partial to them. I collect them. I've always believed in their value and I've seen them appreciate tremendously. You know, when I started in 2007, I used to see boxes and boxes and boxes of Spinel's multicolored layouts for like 20, 30, 40 bucks a carat. And, you know, I can't buy material like this for a thousand dollars a carat now. <laughs> in some of these oh, sizes, geez. you know, and, and, and the Tanzania material is a totally different story. We were actually the first company to buy the first major parcel of cut Mahenge spinels and we invested a significant amount of capital into it. We came back to the United States. You know, we had a client who came and offered us very handsome profit on it. And we took the ball and ran with it, thinking that we'd go back to Bangkok and be able to buy more. And it was just like a freak deposit that came out. And since then, not, no major production has come out like that. And there were stones that were trading for seven to $800 a carat and that are now trading for fifteen to $20,000 a carat. Now, was that, so, was that like 2007 when that deposit hit? Yeah. Am I remembering yeah, correctly? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was September. It was August and September of 2007. So you do you want to talk uh, quickly sneakers? Yeah, How many yeah. you have. Yeah, uh, look, I, I the sneaker thing happened accidentally. It's a funny story. My best friend from high school came to my office. We were about to grab lunch. He's not in the business, and I have the sweet spot in my office. If you notice on my Instagram, you always see like the same background. It's where I get perfect light. And I was complaining to him that my feet are always in the background. And he looked at me. He's like, "You're an idiot. <laughs> you have stones in every color of the rainbow, and you have shoes in every color in the rainbow." I grew up as a sneakerhead, and I used to have a side business when I was a kid, buying and selling sneakers, primarily uh, Air Jordans. So that's how I got into it. That's how I started matching the stones to the to the shoes. Vic, you had asked me, do I buy shoes to match the stones? Yes. Unfortunately, the expensive thing hap that happens is sometimes I'll buy a stone that I know will match a pair of shoes perfectly. <laughs> that's that's a little harder to, to stomach, but um, I've I've kind of phased out of that now. I, th I think my my collection's probably between like seventy and eighty pairs. At uh, one time, I was like between two and two hundred fifty pairs. Oh, wow, and has the sneaker market? I remember hearing or read recently that it's it's come down a little bit in terms of collectible sneakers. And oh, uh, not it's it's come down significantly. It's it's probably taken like the same the same dip that the watch market's taken. I want to say. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of different factors. I think the fact that like brands like Nike are just like re-releasing and reproducing so many more of the same sneakers, whereas they were having much more limited runs in the past, is one thing. And there are just so many resellers out there. So I, I think a few of those things have, have affected it. But, uh, you know, it, 
it's incredible. I mean, StockX, I, I think StockX got acquired for like over a billion dollars, you know, and yeah. their, their primary business was just to be, uh, I, I mean, I've bought and sold sneakers on StockX many, many times. And it was just, it was a, a sneaker verification platform when they first started, which is just unbelievable. God. Well, I guess the, the takeaway is scarcity at all costs, right? And, and when we come to Tucson and we look at your showcases, I suppose that's the through line, right? Those, those goods are pretty darn scarce. Absolutely. That's a perfect segue. We will not be reproducing, uh, you know, <laughs> sapphires in mass quantities. So come buy them while you can. Amen. All right. Well, Dave, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you in Tucson. Thank you. Thank you both. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. All the best. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. 